Yeah, it's about you, man. Talk in Roman, dude. Yeah, she did. She totally spoiled it. She did it right before the story. That's super cool, man. You don't have to ask me about how Literally like five hundred dollars came in. Yeah. Span of an afternoon, like not even three hours. It was so cool. Where it fit in. Today. Yeah. All right, we'll see you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Yeah. Come on in. There it is. All right. Come on in. Uh, join us if you uh, would like to stand with us. Uh, we're Legacy Church. I'm Kevin. Welcome. We are excited to celebrate this morning because we are a, an imperfect, flawed people who are rescued by a perfect Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we gather this morning in this place together as a, as a big family, family of communities, uh, and we do that to worship we're going to start off in song. We're going to move into worshiping in the word as it's being opened to us and taught. And then we'll end with some more worship with music. Uh, if you're new here, uh, welcome. We welcome you and we would like to meet you. We would like to get to know you. are a sign of grace in our lives and Father how you've brought us through when deep were the wounds and dark was the night the promise of your love you proved and now every will always shine and 
comfortable. It's good to have you at Legacy Church. Thanks for coming. It's good to have you here. My name is Luke, if we've not met. I'm one of the pastors at Legacy Church. I'm the lead teaching pastor, and I'm excited about this passage today. It's one I've been looking forward to um, for a while. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 139. We are in a series that I'm really enjoying called Anthem. It's a look at the book of Psalms, not all of them, just some of the key ones that kind of stand out to us. And You probably already knew this without a definition, but an anthem is a different kind of song. An anthem is a a song that appeals to your imagination, it captures your emotions, it, it expresses how you feel, it even forms how you feel. Generations kind of have their own anthems, and I'd like to look at one today from David. And while you're turning to Psalm 139 in your Bible or whatever device you have, some of you know this about Bob Dylan, you follow Bob Dylan. But in 1997, he released a song called Make You Feel My Love, right? It is actually one of the most covered songs he's ever written. And I looked, he's written hundreds and hundreds of songs. Written, not just performed, but written hundreds and hundreds of songs. But this one, Make You Feel My Love, it's been covered by Billy Joel, Garth Brooks, Ed Sheeran, everyone in between. But most importantly, it's been covered by Adele which is probably where you've heard it, right? If you've heard Adele sing this song, Make You Feel My Love, it probably seemed a little bit familiar. Like you heard it and you thought, wait, I think someone else has done this, but she's doing it really well, right? Which is how Adele does things. The video is her when she's in her apartment. It's really dark. It's a it's very urban environment. It's kind of got this somber feel to it, and it got 150 million views in just a matter of a couple weeks. It's a love song. It's an anthem of love, really, and it kind of became an instant classic. It will find itself on, I bet, a three out of four wedding playlists. Here's the first stanza of this song by Bob Dylan. When the rain is blowing in your face and the whole world is on your case, I could offer you a warm embrace to make you feel my love. When the evening shadows and the stars appear and there is no one there to dry your tears, oh, I'll hold you for a million years 
to make you feel my love. Now listen, people argue a lot whether Bob Dylan was a Christian when he wrote this, because there, if you didn't know this, there was in fact a small period of time, two or three years, known as the Christian period by those who have studied Bob Dylan, where he outwardly said he is a Christian, an evangelical Christian who loves Jesus. He even cranked out a couple albums that had heavy themes that were Christian in them. He called them even worship albums, but because he's so cryptic and so confusing in some of his interviews and other songs, a lot of people doubt or argue whether there is authenticity in his faith. Regardless of whether he was an authentic Christian when he wrote something like this, this is definitely a love anthem that has a gospel shape to it. Can't say that. Which is why it's been covered so many times. Who does not like a good love song? Everybody does. In fact, there's a journalist, his name is Tony Atwood, who's also a specialist in all things Bob Dylan, and he says this about this particular song. It is a simple song, a simple love song in one sense. The message is plain. I love you now. I will always love you. If you ever need me, I will be there for you. It's been said a million times before, but it's none the worse for that. I agree with him. I mean, is that not a message we, we, we get in many different ways? People painting about this kind of love. People preaching about this love. People singing about it. People writing about it. Movies made about it. And yet it doesn't wear thin. It doesn't wear thin at all. We keep coming back to it. We keep being amazed by this kind of love. I think this is because we were created to. We were created to kind of see and viscerally respond to it. Remember last week we talked about how we have a God design in each of us to have a visceral response, even a revulsion to injustice, right? We see wicked people winning. We see righteous people losing. And there's this revulsion, this turning upside down inside of us. And that's because God created us to react that way to things that look scandalous. I think the same thing is happening whenever we see this kind of love, this deep love, this always present love, not going anywhere love, deeper than deep love. In fact, when we don't find this love in God, we try to find it in each other, which is how we end up typically breaking the relationships around us because we have this God-shaped need, but we put that God-shaped need to feel love on humans, and they just can't possibly deliver anything like that. I mean, if you're married in this room, listen, hear me clearly. This is not a a sermon on marriage by any means, but just a a quick one-liner. The best thing you can do for your spouse is be content and satisfied in God's love above your spouse's love, or else you'll just break your marriage. You'll break it wide open, trying to get your husband or your wife to give you something that only God can possibly deliver. The same thing if you're looking for marriage or you're pursuing marriage in your life. The best thing that you can do is grow in your satisfaction and the content feel of God's love on you, or else you'll break whatever relationship you find yourself in in the future. I think David is headed somewhere in this direction, but he is the poet this week in this anthem, and he's leading us in how mind-blowing God's consideration is for us, that God has done something otherworldly to make us feel his love, otherworldly. Whether Dylan had this in mind or not when he wrote this, it's super easy to see. Psalm 139, and we're about to walk through it, just stanza by stanza, Psalm 139 is kind of the go-to psalm in in our bible anyway for drilling down on god's omnipresence omni-knowledge omnipotence his everywhereness and how all those characteristics of god kind of weave together to show what god looks like making us in awe creating a wonder 
in us. It's also the go-to psalm regarding the pro-life stance, the unborn. This is the one where we find the most roads to, right? And how this engages unborn children and abortion, it's certainly, this certainly is an application for that, but that's not the main point of this psalm. It's a good application for it, but it's not the main point. The main point is how God answers our ultimate questions. Who am I? Where am I going? Am I alone? Does God care? Does he consider me? Is he thinking of me? It's answering these heavy questions. Some of this psalm has a lament feel to it. Some of it has a celebratory feel to it. Some of it has a wisdom feel to it. So it's kind of a mixed bag as far as what kind of a psalm it is. But aren't all the best songs like that? Don't, aren't, they, don't, aren't they mixed with a little bit of lamenting and a little bit of celebration? So let's just walk through it. And we're going to go into the first stanza. So look at the first stanza, which is Psalm 139, 1 through 6. Now this psalm is set up in four distinct stanzas, and we're going to walk through each of them. This is the first verse. This is God's word to us today. It's going to show us Christ very clearly. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Okay, pause. This knowledge is mentioned several times in different ways. It's not a mechanical knowledge. It's not like an app that captures a browsing history or a knowledge that collects and culls data together. I mean, we're seeing things like sifting us, searching us, knowing our, our hearts even more than we do. I mean, this knowledge knows my motives more comprehensively than I know them. It knows my dreams more thoroughly than I do. So it's not a mechanical knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. And I will say this, I think we could even argue it's an intrusive knowledge, an invasive knowledge, where God knows a lot of us a lot more than we want to be known. Look at what Amos says. Stay where you're at. We'll put it up on the screen. This is a prophet in the Old Testament, Amos. Amos 4, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So this stanza, this first stanza, is talking about omniscience. And if you're not familiar with what that word means, it just means all knowledge, omni-knowledge, knowing everything. Here's the big question I want you to consider. Is this a knowledge that is a comfort to you, or is it uncomfortable to you? You see, we take for granted that this is supposed to comfort us. But it doesn't all the time, does it? I mean... We grow up hearing this knowledge, this deep knowledge is like it's supposed to be a snuggie around us with a, a warm embrace that's supposed to elicit this deep sigh, this deep, this deep exhale of peace and contentedness, but that's not exactly what he's going for. I mean, it's highly argued. I mean, I, I, think, I think this knowledge is a discomfort at first to David. I mean, is it comfortable to be hemmed in on all sides? Or does it feel like a siege? What does it feel like to be known this deeply? 
think it's hard to tell. I think it depends on what day of the week it is for us. I think some days I read something like this and I'm really glad to be known because I feel alone. And I'm really glad that somebody sees me and is considering me. And then some days I just don't want this kind of knowledge. I don't want someone to, to see what is behind my motives, where the edges of my hope is, or what is behind my thoughts. I'm not really interested in someone knowing me that much. Either way, whether this is a comfort or a discomfort, David shows that he is blown away in the presence of such deep knowledge. That's why we see him use the word wonderful. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. In the original language right here, that word wonderful is in the beginning. It's not later on in the sentence. And all it means is an extraordinary and surpassing knowledge. It's not just extra knowledge, but it is an extraordinarily surpassing level of knowledge. It's a knowledge that we can't have. It's too amazing for us to even understand and comprehend with our limited minds how much God understands us. And so David says, I tap out. I can't even, I can't even start to think of how deeply God thinks of me. Just consider this for a moment. How many of you walked in here? Just how you've been able to hide certain things from even those who know you the deepest. And when I say things, I don't mean sin, necessarily. It could be sin. It is for many of us. But other things that you might have hidden, hopes or dreams or fears. Some of you have memories that you've never told anyone about. You've kept it totally secret. Your motives for doing things, what is behind the thing that is behind those motives, you've not told anyone. But God knows. And he doesn't just know he knows more intimately and comprehensively than even you do. Now, that's a deep knowledge. You've not been able to hide these from God. He's staring right at them. We don't have a God that looks at you and says, I wonder what they're thinking. <laughs> and I wonder why they're doing what they're doing. I wonder where they're going with their life. That's not a very sovereign God, but our God is very sovereign. He knows the thoughts behind our thoughts. In fact, some have said God knows us until it hurts. I think that sums it up well. God knows us until it hurts. And we see in verses 5 and 6, not only does he know our actions in our heart, he also knows the destiny and the course of our life. That's what it means when he says he has a hand behind us and a hand before us, how he has hemmed us in with his hand. But even that, some people have said, is that a hand of guidance or a hand of discipline? It's arguable, again. But most scholars do agree whenever they read this, that it is something that David is struggling with. Do you struggle with it? Is this hard for you to handle? God knowing where you're going? God knowing your destiny? I mean, isn't there just a small piece of you that wishes you were autonomous in this regard? That you got to say what happened? In fact, you do. It's a different sermon. But the fact that God wouldn't presume as much to know what you really want, that you would get to say what you really want, Maybe a slight hope in you that God does not design your future. I mean, I think it's natural to fall on all of us sometimes. Look at the second stanza. This is in verse 7. This is going to be very helpful. And you'll notice that this song, as it continues, it starts to accelerate. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. 
and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So this isn't talking as much about omniscience as it is omnipresence. Omnipresence. Not just that God knows, but God is. He is everywhere. And Jonah agrees, by the way. Read the book of Jonah whenever you get a chance. The story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is him trying to find a place where God is not. And then getting super ticked off when that can't happen. Because even in the raging, roiling, stormy sea, God is there. God is there. He struggles with this because Adam struggles with this. I mean, the very reason that Jonah struggled with this presentness and this seenness that he does is because it was in him from the father before him in Adam. Adam struggled with the same thing. It just wasn't a sea. It was a bush. It was a bush. To, to be seen deeply, known deeply, always God with you in a deep way, it just feels unnerving sometimes. It unsteadies us because we want what we want. The human heart wants what the human heart wants. We want to go where we want to go. We want to do what we want to do. We want to think what we want to think. So this impulse to flee God's presence, it is as old as Adam. As old as Adam. We all do it. Even David here confesses, even if I found myself in Sheol, you were there. And this confuses some people, this place. It's a little bit more of a poetic device than it is a place. Okay, so Sheol is this place where man's worship falls silent, falls on deaf ears, and man is ultimately separate from God and man. So you're going to see different people in the Old Testament describe Sheol as something a little bit different, right? Ezekiel calls it a deep cavern or a, a vacuous cavern. We see Job calling it a dark wasteland. The psalmist in Psalm 91 considers it a stronghold, like a fort that you get locked into. We see Habakkuk and Job later on call it a, a beast of prey, like a lion that follows you around, being Sheol. Adam was hoping a bush would do the trick. Jonah, a sea. David says not even Sheol is going to pull it off. I mean, think about it. Consider again, for most of us who entered this room, we did so hiding things, and we also did so escaping things. Like Jonah, in a sense. Scrambling away from things and scrambling towards things. And you fooled everyone around you. No one around you knows. I don't know. You fooled me. You fooled the person next to you. We don't know what you're up to. We don't know what you're thinking. We don't know what you're running from. We don't know what you're running to. You did it. You pulled it off. You're in the dark. Except not really, right? And that's what, that's what David's saying here. Not really. God is omni-involved, ever aware. Let's look at the third stanza. Third standard picks it up in verse 13, and it's going to go to, all the way to 18. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet, as yet there was yet there was yet there was nauseous to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Okay. 
Now you start to see it's accelerating even more because God is inescapable and now he is all operative as well. He's omni-everything. He's omnipotent. This is, there's a note, I'll just say this, there's a, a note of an infinite commitment that God has towards us, his handiwork in this. Maybe you picked it up when we were reading through it, but God will not leave the work of his own hands to chance. And the metaphor he's using to describe that is this book. I don't know if you caught that, the book. The book where things are written, things are not moving, not even death can end us prematurely. I mean, until God pulls you from this place, you are immortal here on this place. Not even death gets a say outside of what God has deemed in this book. God is committed to keeping us and has designed the bookends to your life. I mean, from the moment you became this unformed substance, and mo most scholars believe that this is just a big arrow pointing to the, the embryonic tissue that we are. And when it says the depths of the earth, it doesn't mean in the depths of the earth. It means in the womb right there. Depths of the earth is just a colloquial that means a place where our eyes cannot see, something buried inside of something. Our frame is referenced here as a, as a sort of skeleton. So what we are seeing here is God has designed the bookends of our life from the moment that we become alive to the moment that we breathe our last. And then every, every second and millisecond in between. And our hopes and our memories and what scarred us and our tears, every single tear, every dream, every sin, every noble act, every single thing that we do and every thought process that goes behind it and every time our heart beats, every single thing that has ever happened between A and B has been measured and put in the book before a single day was ever lived. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He's committed to us. He's committed to us and not even death upsets this. And I think where we see a big powerful piece of this passage overall is how God proves this by superintending human birth. That's what he's talking about largely in here, which is why we all kind of rightly and, and quite tightly rally around this passage as our pro-life fort, right? This one right here. What God does in a mother's womb it's second only to what's happening in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, if you take speaking light into existence out of the equation or putting edges to the oceans of the world, if you, if you take that out of the equation, this is number one right here, what happens in a mom's belly, what happens inside of a mom. So it's amazing what God is talking about here. Every person in the womb is deeply considered God shaping us forming us, laying out the details of our life every day. And this revelation, again, is more than David can handle. This is too wonderful for me. It's too wonderful how this happens. For, I mean, listen, as a church, we don't cling to the human rights of the unborn because of a political party. And we don't do it because it seems right or sounds right or feels right. We do it because even the unborn are created in God's image, deeply thought of, deeply considered. And you'll be made to feel old-fashioned in the future by using verses like this as your Alamo. Don't. I mean, it's just going to be more and more discussion in the future as we see um, justices and Supreme Court justices come and go. You're going to start to see this gain more chatter, the unborn, and as you see churches and as you see Christians go to Psalm 139, the whole world will look at that and call you a fool. It will say it doesn't apply. It says it's old-fashioned. It's archaic. 
Don't feel ashamed. This is very beautifully God-breathed scripture, and it is for us today. It shows us that God is infinitely committed to his handiwork, and absolutely nothing is left to chance. But then something happens in the fourth stanza. It can be confusing. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Okay, there's a change of mood here. I'm sure you picked it up just by reading through it. And in fact, if it wasn't for those last two verses to kind of cap it off, it wouldn't even seem like it makes sense. It would seem like it's in the wrong psalm. Like, you'd say, like someone grabbed the wheel and pulled it really fast and then pulled it back. That's what it kind of feels like, but it is very logical what is happening here. We do see a hatred, a deep hatred, but it is less a spite for people and more a zeal for God. That's what's happening here. Hate here carries the idea of judgment, of judgment and rejection. Judgment is in view, and this shouldn't alarm you what's happening right here because we actually see um, more radical things said in the book of Revelation. I mean, if you look in the 20th chapter, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see this zeal and hatred all bottled up. This is what John Piper says on this, and I think he has the, probably the most helpful thought on this part of this passage. He says, we will grant to the psalmist who speaks under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the foreshadowed Messiah and judge, the right to call down judgment on the enemies of God. This is not personal vindictiveness. It is a prophetic execution of what will happen to the last day when God casts all his enemies into the lake of fire. Okay, very helpful. This is what he's saying. God breathed this through David as a sort of prophecy as a sort of prophecy where Christ would come along later as a better David, a better king, and he would actually carry out this execution of proper justice, the right to call down judgment on the enemies of God. And when will this happen? The end of all ends. That's what Piper's saying here. Now it starts to make a little bit more sense. You see, David is beginning and building a thought behind a thought by saying, how could such an omni-God care for us? I mean, if he is all-knowing and all-everywhere and all-active, if he's just all-everything, but he loves us, I mean, we're just common beasts and villains and vandals. I mean, if he, if he loves us this much, then how odd it would be to hate him. How odd it would be. How, how, much, how much more of a crime would it be to declare war and mock and belittle this kind of a God and his people? That's the backdrop of what's going on here. I mean, to love God and to hate evil are two sides of the same coin. That's what David's showing us. To love God and to hate evil are two sides of the same coin. And here we have a very helpful principle, by the way. There's a good principle in here for you and for me. Be careful that you hate and you love the right things. We can be awfully clumsy here as a church, just as a church in general. We could be very awkward and clumsy here. Be careful that you love and that you hate the right things. For instance, it's super fashionable today 
in our spiritual climate, it's very fashionable to rip the church, just to rip it. To love Jesus, of course, but to rip the church. Remember last week we talked about how 40% of Knox metro area is considered a done, in parentheses, a done. And we said that a lot of them are done with God in general, just done with the idea of God's spirituality, but most of that 40% is comprised of people who are just done with organized religion in the church. They're done. You've met them. You might be one of them, right? I love Jesus. I hate his church, right? Because the church has done some pretty tacky things. And I'm with you. My list is longer than yours. The church has done some tacky things. But to love Jesus and publicly loathe and hate the church, the reason we do that is because it's a quick way to ride above the fray of mockery from the culture. You can still be cool. You can still be cool in the culture's eyes, in the secular world, and you can still feel like you have not totally detached yourself from God. Here's the thing about that. To detach yourself from God's church is to detach yourself from the family of God. The church is God's idea. The church is God's very idea. Doctrinally, to be totally disconnected from the church is to be disconnected from Jesus, which doesn't make any sense. He loves the church. He cherishes the church. He will come back for the church. You know, there's this quote that's been floating around. Pastors use it a lot. I actually don't know where it came from. It's one of those unattributable quotes that we try to find who originally said it. The best we could come up with this one is uh, Augustine, and I, I'm not sure if it's him or not. He says, the church is a prostitute, but she is my mother. Think about that. The church is a prostitute, but she is my mother. What this means is the church has problems, big problems. The church has struggles. We'll just leave it there. Shameful, hard problems. But it's my family. It's where I found life. She's in me. I'm in her. How do I turn my back on something like this? I'd never walk up to a husband and say, I like him a lot, but I hate his bride. It would be rude to do something like that. But it's no less impressive than to just do it to Jesus, right? Jesus, I love you, but I can't stand what you bled for. It's just not cool. We have to stop doing it. Not only do we have to stop doing it as a church, we have to be bold and confront those who are doing it. Remember, this is 40% of your metro area. You miss this missionally. You miss a lot. There's 40% of our metro area, almost 200,000 people out there. There's 40% of our metro area that they would tell you, I love Jesus and I hate the church. So this is part of being a missionary, speaking boldly to something like this. Listen, if the church hurt you, stand in line. I'll give you cuts. I'm in that line. It's a long line. The church is full of people. We do stupid things, hateful things, sinful things to each other. There's probably a line somewhere of people that you've heard as well. But Christ loves this church. Jesus did something otherworldly to make us feel his love. And in this gospel path, this process of him making us feel his love, he's created a people. Imperfect, flawed people for certain, but people, people. And the Spirit of God is alive in the body of Christ. Detaching yourself from that body is no win just because the culture says it's cool, just because the culture says it's fashionable. That's just an example. There's tons more. Tolerating some addictions while hating others. Tolerating some forms of licentiousness while hating others. I mean, listen, anytime you take cues from the culture at large on what you should hate or love, you will often be found hating and loving the wrong things. 
That's the easiest way to say it. But here's the thing about this psalm. David knows this. David knows this by the very end, the last two verses. He knows loving and hating the right things can get muddy sometimes. So what does he do? He recruits assessment and appraisal from God himself to scrutinize his life and try his heart as if it was a metal and a furnace to see if both his love and his hatred is as it ought to be. Man, this is a dangerous prayer, is it not? I mean, David's not just confronting the evil around him. That's easy enough. He's confronting the evil inside, and he's begging God to do it for him. That's a little bit harder. But again, this is a steady principle for us, to call upon God to test our hearts, to test our hearts, to see whether our loves and our hates reflect Jesus, that we're hating the right things, we're loving the right things. Look at the last two verses. This is just to go back. These are very helpful verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So we see David with God seeing everything, being everywhere, being omni-involved. David is still inviting him to search him out. He's recruiting the scrutiny, and I think we should make a habit of doing the same. Great principle here for us, to make this prayer a constant prayer in our lives, to always walk with that readiness to be a vulnerable and open book, to be measured by God, and hear me, even invite others into the same process, to invite God into examining us and then to not freak out when it happens. Because listen, you will. Adam did. He bolts for the bushes. I get that. I get Adam right here to make a run for the bushes. I want to run from the peering view and knowledge of God often. Maybe you're like me in that. I don't always want him to see me. I don't want him to see me. I don't want him to measure my motives all the time. Come on. I don't want him to measure my days. I don't want my days to be limited. I want to steer my own life. I want to be sovereign in my life. I don't want him to know my thoughts better than mine. My own mind can do it. I, I, I want some things to stay secret. I want my dreams to be my dreams. I want everything to be mine. I like my ideas of where my life can go. Any bush will do. And this last verse, it asks for light when I would just rather have darkness in it. Again, maybe you're like me a little bit. Why do you think we're like that? Why do you think we're like that, running for the bushes? like our father and Adam. I truly believe it's because we fear that when we are seen in a company to that level, we will be measured and we will be found dirty, unworthy, not valuable, insignificant, not enough, not good enough, not smart enough, not clean enough. But the gospel is a story where God makes us feel his love. The gospel is a story that tells us the exact opposite. I mean, look at verse 8. It's a profound gospel intimation. Jesus took Sheol onto his own life to give you paradise. Jesus takes on his own self a distance from God where prayers would be muted, where he would feel this just cosmic separation from the only the only thing that gave him satisfaction and he does that so that we could be benefited but of course this 
dark emptiness, and even the grave itself could not hold him back. And that is where Christ becomes the hero of this psalm. As we've been saying from psalm to psalm to psalm, Jesus owns these psalms. This is his songbook more than it's anybody's. Before it's yours, it's Christ's. He owns this, and he's the hero, and it's at this very point that he peeks around the corner. He's the one that beat the grave. He's the one that found Sheol, took Sheol for you and for me. It says this in Acts 2.24. Stay where you're at. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's Peter, by the way, preaching. Later on in Peter's little mini-sermon, he says, by the way, go around the corner and down the street, there's another tomb there. David's in it. (laughs) David's in that tomb, but you won't find Christ in one. He's not there. He blew it open and walked right out of that thing. And now for us, there is no separation. For those in Christ, there is no wasteland. There is no longer a beast of prey. There's no longer a fort, prison, only paradise, because of what Jesus did. I mean, he takes us from that stronghold and gives us a place. He makes a place for us. So Jesus fulfills this psalm by taking what was due for us and putting it on himself and then giving us what we don't deserve. That's where he shows up. This is the gospel, the story of him making us feel his love. I'm with David. This is too wonderful for me. This is too wonderful for me. This is too surpassing for me. It's too exceedingly extraordinary for me to comprehend with with my broken mind, with my fallen two-and-a-half-pound brain. I cannot get it around this, that he would do something for just a villain. You know, but maybe this is tough for you and you are a lot more like me and you wish that the last two verses were not so inviting of God into your life. Maybe that open door seems a little bit too wide. Maybe you want to keep your right to hate. You want to keep your right to be secretive, to dream, to hope alone, autonomously, away from God. And if that's true for you, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you my top two ways to hide from God. Are we ready for this? Top two ways to hide from God. One, be sure to escape his people. you got to do that. Okay. If you're going to hide from God, you've got to escape his people. Last week we saw that the Spirit of God is present in the body of Christ, which is made up of God's people, and therein lies the problem, right? So if you want to hide from God, you're going to have to build several degrees of separation between you and God's people if you want to stay hidden anyway. Because the math is simple, believe it or not, right? You stick around people and are known deeply long enough, they will learn you They will see you, and they will, if they're courageous, they will speak to certain things, right? So you can't have that. Or, and this is scary a little bit more, the Holy Spirit might tell them to say something to you. Which happens? Which happens? I was thinking about this the other day, this one little point, and I remember maybe a dozen years ago, 12 years ago, as a pastor in a church in another city in Tampa, I remember struggling with an idol. Not, not, a, not, not something grotesque. It's actually a good thing. But I was just making it an ultimate thing, which is why it's an idol. Right? Idols are not always ugly things. They're just really good things most of the time, but we make ultimate things. I just wasn't as satisfied with God. I wasn't as content with God. I needed this thing. And I remember showing up to a meeting and a Christian coming up to me, a pastor, and this other person wasn't a pastor, and saying, listen, Luke, I just, 
Uh, here it goes. I just feel like I need to say something. Take it, take it for whatever it's worth. It's probably wrong. I don't know. I just feel like if I don't say something about this, I'm just, I'm going to be sitting against God. So here it is. I mean, it took them forever to get to it. And then they just said, the Lord, I felt like, wanted you to know that he's ready for you to be ready to let go of that idol. Now, what you would think I would be feeling in that moment is, oh, yes, Lord. I was thinking, I shouldn't have come to this dumb thing. <laughs> There's people here. And if I'm not known, no one can walk up and tell me something like that. If you want to hide from God, you've got to hide from people. You've got to get away from people. Being known can't happen if you're alone. By the way, some of you have heard the Holy Spirit regarding someone else and you've not said anything. You've not said anything. It might be because you want them to like you and you're afraid that you're going to get rejection by being honest with them. It might be because you're scared and you don't know how to do something like that, right? So just a quick one-two punch. All you do is you walk up very humbly and submit it to them. Don't declare it. Don't do that. Don't say, thus saith the Lord. Don't put it up there with Scripture. Make sure it's backed by Scripture. Make sure it doesn't argue with this by any way. In fact, if you want to bring it to another pastor, we'll help you with that process. But just say, listen, not sure if I'm even in the right ballpark with you. I just feel like God would... I just have this impulse to kind of give this to you. Go ahead and do that. Because if you're wrong, then at least you were obedient to something that you felt like God wanted you to do, and there's no harm, no foul. If you were right, you were part of this beautiful process where if that person is saying, God, search me, search my thoughts, you were a part of that, part of that discipleship. But listen, if you want your flawed life to be an open book, or if you don't want it, then you're going to need to escape the gaze of God, but you're also going to have to escape people as well, right? Which means you're going to have to be shallow when you're around people. You cannot have friendships, definitely not deep ones. In fact, you might have to just come to this thing that we call a service. I mean, you could just show up to this if you want. You could come late and you could leave early. You're likely not to build a relationship that would speak into your life. Anyway, that's number one. Number two, don't just escape people, escape the word. Because if people can judge your actions, if people can assess you by what you do, the Bible assesses you by what you think. It could discern even your motives. Your motives. Hebrews 4, verse 12. It's a very helpful passage. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if you want to avoid and hide from God, you're going to have to avoid and hide from his word. That's how you're going to get it done, right? If you do decide to read it, you got to be real shallow, okay? Just read through it really fast. The last thing you want to do is pray before you read it and pray after you read it. Don't do that. In fact, the best thing is to read it for somebody else. Don't read it for yourself. Read it for your kids. Read it for your spouse. Read it for your neighbor. But don't, don't invite the Holy Spirit into the process of making it real and true for you in that day, right? And if you could pull that off, you've got a shot, right? Not really. Not really. If you do both those things, God still succeeds. We can maneuver. We can try to escape his presence, but it's to no avail. It's to no avail. 
Listen, our larger-than-life questions are answered in this psalm. We have a purpose. We are deeply considered. You were deeply considered before you drew your first breath. Deeply loved. Deeply known. Designed. Etc. You are free to be searched. You are free to be known that deeply. You're, you're free to recruit God to scrutinize your life and to look deeply at your intentions and your motives to see what's right and what's wrong inside of you. You're free to do that because when he finds dirt in your life, you are no less valuable than had he not. What he finds does not dictate your value. What dictates your value is the fact that Christ was perfect. Christ was fully righteous. And that, my friend, is given to you. That was part of that swap on the cross. So you were free. Christ was your acceptable replacement so you can be examined and not lose value. You can be seen and not lose favor. It's the freedom of the gospel. So being searched and being assessed, that's not to harm you. That's to draw you closer. It's to draw you closer. You're free to be exposed. You're free to not pretend anymore. You're free to be an open book to God. Hear me now. You're free to be an open book to the people around you. You're free. You're free. Some of you today, you've been living a secret life, a lie, but you've not fooled God. You've not fooled him. He sees all, and he is omni-involved. So I'm going to tell you the last two verses of this prayer of David is the most dangerous and the safest prayer you could possibly pray. Because yes, you're recruiting heavy assessment, and yes, Christ has covered your dirt, so you will not lose value whenever God sees it. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land this. By the way, here's the last stanza of Bob Dylan's song. The storms are raging on the roiling sea and on the highway of regret. The winds of change are blowing wild and free. You ain't seen nothing like me yet. I can make you happy, make your dreams come true. There's nothing that I wouldn't do. Go to the ends of this earth for you to make you feel my love. Oh yes, to make you feel my love. Friends, listen, this is an anthem the world hopes to feel. This is an anthem the world would love to feel. It earnestly begs to feel, but the gospel brings it to our neighborhood. The gospel brings it straight to us. A God that would go to the ends of the earth to make us feel his love. Let me pray this over you. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for a sermon like this from David to us. Lord, I thank you for being the hero in a passage like this so we don't just have to look and use our imagination to what this kind of deep omni-love looks like. You've just given it to us in the cross and in the empty tomb. Not even death could hold you down. Lord, you hung on that cross carrying our dirt with you, carrying our vandalism against each other and against God with you, and you have given us the very opposite. You took the penalty of that, and you've given us the gift, the graceful gift of paradise and eternity with you, a place being prepared for us, a seat at the table, a banqueting waiting for us. We, we are secure, we are safe, and nothing can separate us from that. So we thank you, Lord. And as we go into this time of worship, Father, I pray that as some in the room ask you for this level of scrutiny, as they repeat David's prayer to, to know them, to search them, to see if what we think right and wrong and feels right and wrong, to try even our, our innermost thoughts, Lord, that you would give them courage to ask for this, this most dangerous of prayers. And Lord, that you would encourage them that with all the trash that you will see when you look into our lives, all the dents and dings and scar tissue and corruption, that we don't lose any value at all. It's as if we didn't do any of that. For we wear the cloak of Christ on us, the one who perfectly came and lived and died and live again. So Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your gospel message that you've gone to great lengths to make us feel your love. We're very thankful for you to be such a kind God and a sweet God to us. For Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.